moot it. I did moot that. Howdy doody, Michelle. Yeehaw. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm all right. I hear you're on a farm in Sweden. That's why I felt the need to be a little bit rodeo. Rodeo. How do you <laughs> say it? It's not quite like that. It's not the Wild West. Rodeo, in, some people say. Rodeo. The rodeo. Swedish farms are not quite like other farms. Why? Very stylish. Lots of red houses. Oh. All very neat. And the fiancé and his dad are, are off on a tractor. That's how they do it here. Fabulous. I think they do it here too with a tractor. I think the tractors are involved in farming here. <laughs> this tractor, it's an old, it's old school. But, but Michelle, is that like when you think that all these amazing Swedish inventions like the piggy game and the cheese slicer, <laughs> you know, when you brought me that beautiful cheese slicer, this is an amazing invention, Geordie. You, I've never seen anything like it. It's a cheese slicer. They use it to slice their cheese of all things. And I've got that lovely cheese slicer. I said, oh, great. I haven't got one of these. I haven't had one for a while. You were like, hang on. You've seen them before? I said, yeah, they're always <laughs> in the charity shops. It's because all those Swedish people are getting rid of them. But yes, I'm I'm not up on the gadgets. I'm not up on the gadgets. Fair but enough. I didn't like that one. It's a very Swedish thing. They have their cheese in big round blocks. So you need that cheese slicer to go around the edges. Fair enough. Yes, it's precision cheese slicing. Listen, Michelle, I think we ought to take a moment just to introduce ourselves. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle. And you are listening to... Eavesdropping. It's a podcast where weekly we talk about all sorts of things like supernatural, true crime, real life, bodily functions, all sorts. Join us every week. (laughs) And this week, we've got to talk about the fact that you went to the podcast nominations. Reveal. Yes, I went to the reveal of the podcast nominations. Now, I spent hours preparing a snippet of audio of some previous episodes the best bits I thought and Michelle thought and I did about four or five versions before Michelle allowed it through and I had to meet over the criteria of the British Podcasting Awards obviously and when I arrived I thought we were in with a good chance Michelle because well I just did and I got there with uh, our social secretary stroke legal team Julius who had listened to an episode previous I did give him the brief quickly listen be up to speed if you're going to be representing unfortunately because you're only allowed to have one other guest everyone was talking to their friend or their partner no one was really talking to each other so it's a bunch of people in podcasting talking to their one guest that they've brought with them you get one token when you walk in there's a picture of me holding my token that was for a free drink at the bar then they revealed the nominations and it was people like French and Saunders and Fern Cotton and John Ronson BBC Sounds, I mean, my goodness, how are we supposed to compete with those guys? You don't. And I think it's a little unfair. I can tell you who's going to win. Who? There's this guy called George. I don't know who it is, but it said, have you heard George's podcast? I think it's called that. I think the name of his podcast is, have you heard George's podcast or something like that? Forgive me if I'm wrong. But he was almost in every single category. So he's going to sweep the boards, I reckon. Right. But we still have a chance, Michelle. Listener's choice. We do. And in fact, one of those super successful uh, true crime podcasts, Red Handed, that's how they started. Exactly. They got no nominations 
And then they got listener's choice and boom, they're away. So come on. We need we need our lovely eavesdroppers to get voting for us. Please vote if you love what we do or even just mildly like it, find it entertaining or just like the sound of our voices in the background. If you want to continue hearing that. If you don't even like the podcast but you just like us, get voting. Please vote. <laughs> this is how you do it. Michelle's going to tell you the link right now because I get it wrong. Pens and papers, pens and papers. Hang on. Pens and paper. <laughs> get your pens Just and papers Just get on your out. phone. Just get on your phone. Okay. Britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Then you'll be taken to a pop-up window where you have to find the podcast. Now, you've got to put in eavesdropping, no G, with the apostrophe at the yeah. end. We'll come right up. You'll see our lovely uh, pink Silly faces. outlined faces photograph yourself yep. faces and you pop your email in there then you need to go to your email and verify that it's really you and then you voted for us so and we thank that's you that's how you do it and we do from the bottom of our heart exactly and <laughs> as a thank you we are going to do a special episode in a few episodes time not only to mark our anniversary of a thousand million episodes. 100 episodes. Thank you, Michelle. You know I'm not good with numbers. <laughs> so we'll do a special episode and we'll include some snippets and we'll do our very own nominations audio file for you and you can enjoy that over and over. Yours to keep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, eavesdroppers. We love you. Alex Smart, sometime unpaid intern who gave us the fantastic stories about the stone tape theory ghost stories victorian ghosts pub ghosts he's voted he pointed out that you definitely need the apostrophe all of our usual people that you hear about in this podcast they have all voted so please join the hordes i've got some feedback from last week's episode oh tell me tell me last week we did a sciencey kind of episode i would love to know what neil the scientist thinks of it He's not been in touch. He hasn't, but he has. He was excited to see that I was in Brick Lane because that's where the nominations were held, the nominations reveal. And he said, the Brick Lane, the same one of Jack the Ripper, the same one. And you do get that vibe when you're walking around Shoreditch, though. You think, imagine back in the day what it must have been like. Well, a lot of London streets, you know, it doesn't take much to cast your mind back and feel that you're in ye olde England. You can feel it, can't I think. you? I think so. The you vibe can. is there. But the mm. feedback was, and it was a science episode, we were talking about Oumuamua, which is a monolith-style rock that's floating through the air. I talked about a supermassive black hole. We talked about time and the multiverse. Michelle gave a book review on Matt Haig's novel. How to Stop Time. How to Stop Time. And the time. Midnight Library, yes, yeah. which I have finished. Gorgeous book. And we talked about time slips. Now, Yannicka of Amsterdam, our wonderful listener, shout out to Yannicka. She's given us lots of ideas in the past for episodes. She noted, she has also read that book, Michelle. She loved it. Yes. Yes. But she found the episode hard to follow because of the enormity of the ideas. And I think it's fair to say that we also found it hard to follow ourselves didn't we because we were bouncing from one idea to the next it was a, it's tricky when you haven't got a scientific mind it's hard to think scientifically isn't it Michelle well it is I got completely lost when I was talking <laughs> to you about the bowling ball and the universe the Malteser on a trampoline all of the wonderful and the giant eating yeah the Malteser that it, was it do you think we should stop doing science <laughs> no I think it was a good idea <laughs> to like do science it. but what she said was she had some feedback as she was listening to us talking about 
did we ever think it would be possible to be like Matt Haig's novel, How to Stop Time, the protagonist was somebody who has some disease or some syndrome where they live for a long, long time. He was 400 years old and there was a group but of them that found 40. each other, yeah. looked 40. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to live for that to happen? And she disagreed with us when we pondered it. She said, no, not in this day and age because CCTV, digitalized everything. It would be very hard for somebody who was 400 and had many lives to slip through the net in this digital age. I think she has got a point. Harder and harder, for sure. But, you know, there are also ways to disguise yourself, dye your hair, maybe have some Botox, I don't know, some plastic surgery you could change. But no, I I do think she has a fair point. A bit of identity fraud. For sure. Good point, Yannicka. Thank you. Good point. Well made. So have you got anything you want to tell me, Michelle? Well, I just wanted to give a little endorsement update. Now, I did want to say we did have some feedback. We did. Legal team. Yes. The last Lynn Dawson update was maybe a little hard to follow, especially if you didn't know who Lynn Dawson was. And I'll just quickly give you another quick recap for anyone who's jumping in. Chris Dawson is a former Australian PE teacher connected to a pedophile ring who is also currently pleading not guilty to murdering his wife, Lynn, who went missing without a trace from her Sydney home 40 years ago. And there is that wonderful podcast called Teacher's Pet if you want to know more because it's a fascinating listen by the Australian. Yes, I've put links to that podcast in previous episodes and I'll do so again. Like I said, we gave some updates a few weeks back. And this week, the court was told that a former neighbour to both Lynn and Chris called Coral Clark gave a statement to police in 2011 where she claimed Lynn had come to her door crying about things that Chris had said to her. And on Tuesday, this statement was actually allowed into evidence after Chris Dawson's legal team objected to it being part of the trial evidence. And apparently, and this is a quote, Coral Clark said in her statement, before Lynn went missing, she came round this particular day and was upset and crying because Chris was calling her a fat and ugly bitch simply because she couldn't lose the baby weight she was carrying from her youngest child. Absolutely horrible. It's horrific. That was in the podcast. I'm pretty sure she, her voice was heard on the podcast. She was the neighbour who also saw them having a huge physical argument on the child's trampoline. Yes. Now that was never allowed into evidence before, but because Chris Dawson's legal team were trying to block that, but now it is. So that has definitely become part of the evidence against him in the trial. Coral Clark, and she also said that in Teacher's Pet, has said there was no way that she would ever have left her kids. And we've heard this again and again from friends of Lynn Dawson. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think this also goes some way to backing up a claim from Joanne Curtis. Joanne Curtis is Chris's second wife and the kid's teenage babysitter, who he moved into the family home as his girlfriend just days after Lynn went missing. Yeah. So she has previously said in court that Chris would sing cruel songs about Lynn and call her fatso. Oh, my God. And I think that speaks so much to his character, if it's true, because his legal team obviously denied both claims. But we've now got two different sources who are saying that he was pretty nasty to Lynn. 
So who knows whether or not this is true. Now, it also came out in court that Joanne Curtis, the babysitter who was then moved in as the girlfriend, she was apparently working on a tell-all book back in 2016 with a ghostwriter called Rebecca Hazel. And apparently Joanne Curtis said to her in 2016, come on, hurry up and finish this book so we can both make some money. What? Yeah. So this also casts maybe some doubts on Joanne Curtis's motivations. All very murky. Yeah. And look, I'm not saying Joanne's motivations for what went down when Lynn went missing. I'm saying about maybe her motivations for what she's saying now. Now. Yeah. So then in an email from Joanne Curtis to the ghostwriter Rebecca Hazel from August 2012, she did say that Chris Dawson in the marriage would control what she wore and if she asked for new clothes, she was told by Chris that she would have to, inverted commas, earn them in the usual way by being his sex slave for 24 hours. Oh. Crikey. So, and I, and the reason I mentioned that is because we did talk a couple of weeks back about this idea of coercive control mm. and that obviously Joanne Curtis was very young when she was his babysitter, started a very sexual relationship with him while he was still in the marriage. To and him. his student as well. Let's not forget that she was also and his, his student. student. Yeah. She was his student. Yes. So as the trial continues, I'll keep you updated. <laughs> This conversation that we're having right now about Lynn Dawson and coercive control and male sexual violence kind of segues a little bit into our theme this week, I think, Michelle. What have you got for me? Not so much those themes in my story, but we do have some hometown murders this week. Okay. And, you know, the big question that I'm going to be asking this week is... What happened to Elizabeth Herford? Now, I don't know if that's how you actually pronounce her surname. Good luck with that. Yes. Apologies to her family if I'm... Or maybe it's Harford. Harford? How do you spell it? H-E-R-F-O-R-T. Herford. Harford. Herford. Herford. I don't know. But anyway, we're just going to be calling her Liz. So look, for any new eavesdroppers... This is a true crime episode, I take it. It is true crime. True crime. True crime time. And we have done a series of hometown murders that look at crimes, murders and disappearances that have happened where we grew up. And for me, I grew up in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. And Geordie, uh, you grew up on the south coast of Australia around Batemans Bay. many murders. Well, yes, but you later lived in Canberra. Yeah. And back in season one, when we did our first hometown murder, we talked about a Canberra murder that was committed by a guy we both actually knew called David Pike, which for me is one of my favourite episodes because it's so connected to where we grew up and how we independently both knew this guy Mm. and the terrible events that unfolded that we talked about through our own eyes as teenagers. We were witness to the events at the time. Not witness to the murder, let me point out, but very much involved in the murderer's life. Yeah, and look, go back and listen 
listen to that episode. Like I said, uh, season one, episode 11. Over the past two seasons of Eavesdropping, we've looked at other chilling cases, both in Canberra and Batemans Bay. And I will put links to those in the show notes. But today I've looked at another Canberra murder. God, just keep coming, Michelle. I know. And this one's from 1980. Great year. I actually haven't asked Jen if she remembers this case because she was the one who asked me to look into the Megan Mulquiny hometown murder, yeah. which then led to the Karen Rowland murder. So, Jen, if you're listening, let us know if you remember anything about this case. Before I start, I just want to say when I was doing the research into this, there were a few bits of conflicting information that I've read across different reports. So I will try to talk about the facts as best I can. Apologies in advance. Apologies, fast and loose. I know. And if you've read anything different to what I'm saying, I apologise. But if that's the case, then they can just, they can shout and shout, but we won't hear them. What you need to do is send us an email. (laughs) Hello at eavesdropping.com. That is true. So I'm going to take you back. June 1980. So 18-year-old Elizabeth Herford had gone to Canberra from Queensland where she and a boyfriend had seasonal jobs as fruit pickers. Elizabeth had grown up in Canberra and she decided to go back to Canberra without her boyfriend that weekend because she was going there over the Queen's birthday long weekend. And she was staying with her mum in Pierce, which is a suburb on the south side of Canberra. By all accounts, I've read that she was just a really nice, smart, little bit hippie-ish kind of girl And she was just really looking forward to catching up with friends and celebrating her brother's 16th birthday over that long weekend. It was late morning on Friday, June 13, 1980, when Elizabeth asked her mum if she could borrow her mum's car to go to the Southland Shopping Centre, which is in the south side of Canberra. Uh, She wanted to go there after to lunch and then go meet some friends at the ANU uni bar. Good times. I've used to spend many hours there. Oh God, look, we both did. And we've talked about the uni bar before. She was there and when we were going there, I was always there drinking, playing pool. Smoke. And you could smoke back then. You could smoke there. There was a riot there one night. My friend, I won't name him, he was my friend at the time, got into some trouble with some skinheads. He used to be a skinhead and then he wasn't. And there was a huge beating, beat him up brawl. And there was people taken to hospital and all sorts. I hid under the pool table. Well, that pool table, do you remember? It was always like covered in a haze of smoke. Probably this was after your time. And actually I was out visiting you at this time. So I missed when Nirvana were playing at Mm. the Unibar. But that is legendary. I mean, the Unibar is legendary in Canberra. I, I hung out with the Damned backstage when I was like 16 at the Unibar. They played a show oh and then invited God. me to come and join them in a big circle of chairs. I was the only girl there. Weren't you lucky? They had some incredible acts. It was really one of the coolest places to be in Canberra if you were into bands. I've seen Iggy Pop there. Public Image Limited. You know, we were going to raves there. It was a cool place. Circling back to Liz, she was going there to meet some mates, to, you know, hang out and play pool, drink some beers. And according to some reports I read, her mum told her that she needed the car to run some errands and she suggested Mm. to Liz to get the bus instead. So when Anne got home around 2.30 that afternoon, Liz had gone and she just assumed she'd taken the bus. That was the last time her mum, Anne, ever saw her daughter alive. Oh, dear. So from reports I've read, 
Liz's last movements start around 2.30pm on that afternoon, Friday, June 13. Liz withdrew her last $1.50 from the bank, so she was pretty skint, and she took the bus to the uni bar where she spent the afternoon, like I said, hanging out with old schoolmates. She was there until around 9 o'clock when she and her friends decided it was time to go home. When I was researching this, I read a post from a girl who says she was part of Liz's group of friends that night. And she reckons Liz wasn't really drunk or anything like that that night, that none of them were. At that time, people in her friendship group often hitched home after going out because Canberra buses back then were few and far between. And if you had no money and you lived really outside of Civic, hitching apparently was pretty common. The thing is, according to another one of Liz's friends who was drinking with her that night, he asked her how she was getting home and she said she wasn't sure because she didn't have any money. So apparently he said he'd lend her, you know, some bus fare money and they could walk to the Civic Interchange, the bus interchange together. And he said, look, just wait, I'm going off to the loo. Uh, When he got back... Liz had gone Uh and he went outside and waited for her for a bit but she just wasn't anywhere so he just thought right I've got to get to Civic and get my bus so he walked there on on his own oh dear yeah that was apparently the last confirmed sighting of Liz was she in the loo did she go off with a biker who knows but there are some theories and I'll get to those in a sec Because when Liz's mum, Anne, realised that Liz hadn't come home the next morning, she reported Liz missing to the Woden police station. Woden, again, is on the south side of Canberra. And it wasn't long before the police started appealing to the public for witnesses. And look, a few people did actually come forward. There were several witnesses who said they had seen a young woman trying to hitchhike that night. In fact, one person said they actually picked up a girl who Mm. they think was Liz near the Canberra Theatre, which is in Civic and not far from the Unibar. So she could easily have walked that in 10 minutes. He apparently dropped her off on Commonwealth Avenue just before Coronation Drive, which which is where he was turning off. And look, that's actually not very far. But it probably saved her about 15, 20 minutes of walking. But then she's somewhere a little bit more kind of... Remote. Desolate. Yeah, that's that's dodgy. Because it's out of the city civic centre where she probably could have picked up a better lift. I found this article that said there were court records of this encounter where within the first few days of the investigation into Liz's appearance... He did come forward of his own volition, saying that he gave a female, very young, possibly of an age where she might have been a first-year university student. He did say he only gave her a brief lift. He said that stopping had actually been a bit of a second thought and that he wasn't actually going to stop, but it was cold. And he'd done hitchhiking in the past, which is why he'd stopped, because he knew he couldn't give her much of a lift. Did he not know it was dodgy as a, as an old bloke? How old was he? No, I don't think he was that old. I think he was in his 30s. Right, still dodgy. But then so is hitchhiking. Yeah, and look, he said when the girl got in, he drove along Commonwealth Avenue and crossed the bridge over Lake Burley Griffin. And he reckons she was not in the car for more than a few minutes before 
she he said I'm turning here and she's like okay I'll get out here and look I kind of get it because I've hitchhiked before and I've taken lifts that were not going all the way to where I was going but I took the lift because it's just yeah yeah you think you're just going to inch closer yeah you're a bit closer to where you want to go maybe you'll walk maybe that say if you're walking all the way home maybe that saves you 20 30 minutes off the walk Mm -hmm. hopefully you flag another car down I really scoured the internet on this guy because I thought, are there any reports of this guy's car being tested for DNA? You know, was it actually Liz that got in his car or someone else? Yeah. There were no DNA tests taken of his car. And it Mm. seems like at the time he was not really a suspect. And he was never charged with anything. And Mm. also, when he was shown photos of Liz, he said that apart from the hair, which was sort of the same length but a bit darker... And the cheekbones, he didn't, he wasn't really sure that it was her. So there is a real question mark over whether or not the girl he picked up was was Liz or not. Okay, okay. So after they'd sort of gone through his account, the police were back to square one with the case. And over the next two weeks after her mum had raised the alarm, more than 100 ACT emergency services volunteers and police, they searched Lake Burley Griffin. And they searched bushland and they searched some pine forest areas around the ACT, including the Air Disaster Memorial in the Fairburn Pine Plantation. And I mention this because nine years earlier, another woman had gone missing. Side of the road. She was called Karen Rowland. And we actually Uh. covered this case earlier, which is why I mentioned it at the top of this story. Yeah. And we did this case in season three, episode 12, if you want to know more about Karen. So apparently the mood at the time was that this seemed like a similar disappearance. Like I said, young girl walking alone on the roads of Canberra late at night. And so thinking that there might have been a connection, they searched some of the pine forest where Karen's body had been found, but they didn't find anything. Then on June 28, so a week and a bit after Karen had gone missing, a man apparently called the police to report that he'd seen a man arguing and acting aggressively towards a young woman on the side of the road at about 9.45 on June 13, around 80 metres away from the lights on Commonwealth Avenue near the Coronation Drive intersection, quite close to where that guy said he dropped her off. Dodgy. Well, this guy reported that he'd seen this encounter. And the guy who's reporting this, he'd been a Queensland police officer for around a year. And he says he slowed down and was going to stop when he saw the guy being aggressive towards this girl. But instead, he decided to just... Drive on? Wow. He thought, I don't want to get involved in this because he thought it was probably a domestic argument. Then he sort of regretted not intervening. So Mm. he stopped a little bit further down the road, not to help, but to take down the number plate of the car that he thinks from memory he remembered and look maybe he had training in this because he was an ex-Queensland cop but if you're an ex-Queensland cop why aren't you stopping if there's a domestic on the side of the road exactly you're not scared of confrontation or getting involved so he gave that info along with a description of the car to the police Uh and nearly two weeks later and he said the dude on the side of the road had been wearing a hat now 
he said he hadn't reported this information earlier because he'd been studying for his accountancy exams and that he hadn't been watching the news. So he didn't really connect Liz's disappearance with what he'd seen on June 13. That's fair. Yeah. But when he gave the information of the license plate, they traced the number plate to a guy who they've called Harry the Hat. Because apparently this guy, whose name isn't actually Harry, but no. something else, they, they've called him Harry the Hat to protect his anonymity. Apparently he did always wear a hat. So police did interview Harry the Hat quite a few times. And he's always cooperated with police. He's never got legal representation at any point, but he has consistently insisted that it wasn't him. And he said he was at home that night with his car locked up in the garage. And he says this whole story that connects him to Liz is a setup. The ex-Queensland cop who didn't stop, he said his impression of the guy arguing with the girl was that he was wearing a dark coloured hat with a narrow brim and a high crown. Kind of like what bookies wear. Yeah. Now, Harry the Hat is known for wearing a pork pie hat. And I think a bookie's hat is kind of similar to a pork pie. Yeah. So, there is a little bit of a connection there. But Harry the Hat, according to a police report, said that he'd, on that night, had a 10 to 20 minute phone conversation with the woman he'd met through an introduction agency that was around... 8 o'clock, but between 8 and 9. And Mm. this was backed up by the woman who said she remembers the time of the phone conversation because she'd mentioned concern that her son was watching The Incredible Hulk on Channel 7. And that show ran for an hour between 8 and 9. So that's when the phone conversation did take place. And he also said... Vintage. It would have taken him... 30 minutes to reach the spot where Liz was supposedly seen. According to his police statement, he said he would have he would have been travelling on the inbound carriageway of Commonwealth Avenue, requiring him to sight the girl on the opposite side of the road, do a U-turn and then stop. And he said he had no purpose travelling towards Civic at that hour. And he's never been someone just to drive the streets for something to do. And on that night, he had no reason to go out. I actually do get a bit of an innocent vibe from Harry the Hat. But wait a minute, Michelle, I have a question. Did that policeman's recording of the car registration amount to anything? Did it correlate with the man who gave the lift, for example? Well, it wasn't the guy who gave the lift. Okay, so that's why we're looking into Harry the Hat. I was wondering why they suddenly jumped from that to that. Oh, sorry, I didn't, didn't I not make it clear? Harry the Hat's registration is the registration. It was. But oh, the guy. I missed that. Sorry. Sorry. That's how they came to Harry Harry the Hat. This is Harry the Hat's car. It's his ride. It's his license plate that was yeah, taken okay. down. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sorry. That's how we got to Harry the Hat. Sorry if that wasn't made clear earlier. Harry the Hat is there saying, yeah, you've got my license plate. You found me. It's not me. That's why he thinks it's a setup. Right. Yeah. He thinks it's a setup. And look. This guy, Harry, he did hypnosis for the police where his movements on the day under hypnosis completely match what he told the police. He also went underwent psychiatric observation, which ultimately did not result in any charge or prosecution against wow. Harry the Hat, even wow. though he was the prime suspect at the time. But look, I did read another report where Harry did officially tell police that he believed he was being set up by this Queensland cop because he reckons that he'd had a near-miss car accident 
with a red-coloured Valiant Charger sedan that he said was owned by that Queensland cop. And it was on the day after Liz had disappeared in Belcon and Mall. So he reckons this is a bit of a vendetta from this cop who, let's just note here, has access to all sorts of police mates. Yeah. Maybe this was an ulterior motive because I don't know about you. I've seen road rage on the streets. It exists. Absolutely. But all of this weird kind of convolution, there's a girl missing, guys. What happened to her? That's the thing. It's the If this is a vendetta, it's it's pretty mean because like you say. There's a girl gone missing and they're just farting around. So look, basically Harry's off the hook. He's not a main suspect anymore because everything came to nothing. And then a taxi driver came forward to say that he thinks between 9.15 and 9.25, he saw a young girl trying to get a lift hitchhiking on the side of the road. When shown a picture of Liz, he said it was pretty much identical to the girl he thinks he saw. Right. With Harry the Hat, not a suspect. And, you know, the supposed lead of a couple arguing on the side of the road in question, maybe this is the last sighting of Liz because no other woman has come forward to say that they were also walking on the side of the road that night. Right. So we just don't know. Was it Liz? So just circling back to Harry the Hat, if the ex-cop sighting was a sham because he did have some kind of vendetta against Harry, then so be it. But... If he really did see a couple arguing by the side of the road and the guy was actually wearing a hat, do you know who else famously always wore a hat? Ivan Milat. Yep. Ivan Milat. Why do they call him Ivan? That's the Croatian way to say it. Well, he does have Croatian um, ancestry. So, yes, Uh you're absolutely right. Australian serial killer Ivan Milat. Now, we did talk about Ivan Milat in the Karen Rowland hometown murders. I know because... He was flagged in Karen's... He got away with it for so long. Well, that's right. And it was mooted that Karen could have been Ivan's first victim. That's right. And that was mooted by police. Well, look, nine years old... And that was mooted by you, Michelle. It was mooted. I did moot that. Left, right and centre. Moot here and a moot there. I love a a good moot. moot here. (laughs) Sorry. Well, look, I'm just saying, nine years on... Could it be possible that Liz was another one of his victims? Because yeah. as we know, it has been well documented that Ivan Malat was up and down the highways between Sydney yeah. and Canberra. With his hat. With his, his hat. handlebar moustache. And Belangolo State Forest murders had not yet been committed at this point. No. But we do know that he was up to no good in the, in the interim. We do because he was a road worker on the Hume Highway at the time of Liz's disappearance. So, like I said, up and down those roads. And look, I just want to posit this idea. You're positing, you're mooting. All of these bodily functions are occurring right now. <laughs> a moot moot here and a posit posit there. <laughs> this is this is a bit creepy. I'm just going to warn you. Oh, is the it a trigger? Before, right. No, it's not so much a trigger as... It's just a bit weird, yeah, because the night before Liz went missing, and you you might remember this because I think we talked about this on a previous episode, there were two 20-year-old nurses 
who were last seen at 7.30pm on Saturday, June 12, 1980, leaving the Tollgate Hotel in Parramatta on the outskirts of Sydney with Mm. a man dressed in dirty work clothes wearing a floppy black hat, cowboy-style hat. Now, an hour and a half after the pair left the hotel... One of the nurses called her flatmate to tell her they wouldn't be home for dinner and that they were in Wollongong, which is one hour and 15 minutes away in the car from Mm. Sydney, right? So, from Wollongong, it's around two and a half hours in the car to Canberra. Like I said, this is the night before Liz went missing. And I'm just going to put this out there. Busy, busy. Because Ivan Milat has been touted as the main suspect in the disappearance of these two Sydney nurses. So what if he murdered those nurses, went to an old haunt somewhere between Belanglo Forest and maybe the Pine Forest in Canberra to get rid of the bodies because he's up and down that highway? What if he had a taste for killing that weekend and went to Canberra on the hunt for his next victim? I'm not saying this is true. It's all my own speculation. Yeah, sure. But what if he's on the roads just driving around looking for his next victim and he sees Liz on the side yeah. of the road, yeah. either dropped off by that Presenting guy. Presenting herself just in the wrong place at the wrong hiking. time. Yep. I wonder, though, if profilers would think that after a double murder, such as what you've just described, and did they ever find these nurses' bodies? I don't think so, no. After a double murder, would the murderer then, isn't it usually the case that there's a little bit of downtime? But I don't know either. I don't know much about the psychology behind these acts. Well, look, two years after Ivan Milat was arrested in 1994 for the abduction and murder of the seven hitchhikers that you mentioned before. From the Belanglo State Forest. Yep. Police then released the names of 15 cases that needed to be re-examined in light of Ivan Milat's conviction. These people were people who had disappeared after hitchhiking or were on the side of the road. Karen was on that list and so was Elizabeth. So Uh, was Liz. She was on that list. But just like Karen Rowland, Ivan Milat never admitted to abducting or murdering Liz. So there is a Big question mark. He also said he didn't do any of the murders later on as well. So you can't... Yeah, he did. He was trying to get as much as he could out of the system when he was in prison. Yeah, and, you know, I just think he was not the kind of guy that wanted to give any closure to these families. No. Whether or not he was involved, we don't know. So, unfortunately, this case remains a cold case, with Liz's body never having been found. Oh, man. And in 1993, after the law changed in the ACT, which allowed an inquest to be made where no body had been found, Liz's family finally did get an inquest, which actually had to be paused twice because new evidence had come to light. And the first new lead came from a guy called Mark Ellis, who was apparently boasting to his mate Stephen Van Pickering about abducting Liz. So they hauled this guy Mark into court where apparently he had told his mate Stephen how he had picked up Liz from the uni bar, had re- and trigger warning for this, had repeatedly raped her, killed her and wrapped her body in a mattress and then he dumped her body off a bridge into a river on the south coast. But oh, then God. he said he just made it all up and he didn't what a think Stephen dick. would actually believe him and that he enjoyed 
shocking people with oh. wild stories. And the reason he said he might have told Stephen such a fucked up story. I mean, come on, it's a creepy story to make up. That he just had, and these are his words, he was just having fun pulling this guy's chain. What an And ass. that there was no basis of fact to the story. So it was ultimately dismissed from court as being bullshit. And I tried to find out what the second lead was that stopped the initial inquest, but I couldn't find any info on that. Ultimately, the 1993 coronial inquiry returned an open finding and a death certificate was issued to the family in November 1996 when the coroner found that although her body has never been discovered, it was likely that she met with foul play and was dead. Oh, man. Here we are, still no closer to finding out who killed Liz. Sad for her family. So if anyone has any info, no matter how small, Australian Crime Stoppers are still taking information. So I'll put a link to that. So there you go. Where do you go? My story is also a murderous story, trigger warning, and it is about sexual violence and violence from a man to a woman, especially in a kind of domestic setting, trigger warning. But I do Mm -hmm. start in Canberra because it started from memories of my skateboarding days in the late 80s in Canberra. And I was known back then as a Betty, skate Betty, they called me because I couldn't do... (laughs) Remember that skate Betty because I couldn't do any tricks, and also I used to go out with or was or be friends with prominent skaters of the time. Did you have a board? Yeah, a deck. Oh, okay. I called it a deck. A deck. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you had some deck. Did could you ollie on? Could you do some? I could not. I could do grind. I could grind. I did sort of like a grind. Rail slides. Rail slides. Yeah, I could do. I don't think I could do that. That's a bit tricky. I think I could do a a small ollie. I can't remember. Not much. I used to just get about on it, really, and use it as a weapon should any kind of Ivan Milat type characters come up from behind me. Good thinking. Yeah, I never fell off it. I used to go to school on it. I used to go to the shops on it. I used to get home from people's houses on it late at night. Amazing. But then I remember going to see the Bones Brigade on tour, which was a skateboard team of pros who would tour around the world. And it was started by Greg Powell and Stacey Peralta, two very famous 1970s skaters. Started in 1978 and in about... It was the year 88 or 89. Can't remember. But I saw them tour with Stacey Peralta and featuring Tony Hawk, who everybody was talking about at the time. He was a young blood and he was brilliant and there were bands playing. I think it was SSDC, definitely the Village Idiots, which the lead man, Stick, who was a, a mate of mine at the time, was an excellent skater. That led me on to Patricia Arquette, who once said on Twitter... In response to a a question, what was the worst date you ever had? Well, Patricia Arquette, the actress, said her worst date was with a pro skateboarder who turned out to be a really bad kisser. She said, we made out, but something about how he kissed freaked me out. She added that she then gave him a fake number at the end of the date. And that was the end of it. When she was asked, you know, how bad was it? She said, oh, it was like pushing me back really hard with his jaw and it felt like he was angry. Oh, was this Tony Hawk? No. Years later, he killed his girlfriend, she concluded. (gasps) Right. So I looked into this. But I'd already known about this because of another story, which I will tell you about later. Mark Gator Rogowski. I'm going to pronounce it Rogowski. I don't know if that's right. If it's Rogowski or Rogowski, I think it's Rogowski. We're going to call him mostly Gator 
or Mark in this story. It was the 80s. He was right behind Tony Hawk as the most popular up-and-coming skateboarder in America. Now, Gator started when he was seven years old in his hometown of Escondido in California, near San Diego. And just like Tony Hawk, he was a skate pro by the age of 14. And in 1987, at a skate show, he was 21, he met a 17-year-old girl called Brandy McLean and her friend Jessica Bergston. Gator and Brandy became a couple, and shortly after, Brandy moved in with him from her hometown into his place. They were the hot skater couple, and they were going around partying, traveling, appearing in skate videos, working as models. They even appeared in the Tom Petty video for Free Fallen. I'm free! Free Fallen! That's the one. (laughs) And Gator also appeared as Christian Slater's stunt double in the 1989 film Gleaming the Cube. That must be some kind of skate reference. I never knew what that meant. Gleaming the cube. What are you doing, Christian? Oh, I'm just gleaming the cube. Honestly, I don't know what it, it means. sounds like he's polishing the knob. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> A very strange geometrical shaped knob, if you ask me. So anyway, going back to Gator, in the 90s, his career suffered because the sports commercial prospects started to wane and he was using drugs and alcohol because of all the partying. Then he had an accident in Germany and I don't know what happened. He fell or was pushed from a hotel window and landed on a fence. Whether he was on drugs at the time, I don't know. Whether somebody pushed him because he was being an asshole, again, I don't know. That's all I could find. But after that, he was changed, a changed man. He changed his views on religion, became deeply Christian, and that included no sex before marriage, despite the fact that he and Brandy had been at it for years. So then he's with Brandy and he's telling her, that's it, we can't have sex together anymore. She was getting a bit tired of all the abstinence and the heavy-handed coercion because at one point he locked her in a closet. He was becoming violently jealous, so eventually she ended it. She moved back with her family. Fuck yeah, get the fuck out of that, Brandy, Jesus. She moved back with her family in San Diego, but Gator wouldn't give up on her. He kept calling. He left revolting messages. He took back all her gifts, including her car. And then somehow, strangely, there was a moment when Brandy thought, oh, maybe we could get back together. So they went for a a reconciliation dinner. But during the date... In front of everybody in the restaurant, he made threats to beat her and leave her in the desert. <gasps> so that's oh it. Oh, my God. Brandy meets a surfer. She gets together with him. But that wasn't enough to deter Gator. He's still harassing them both at this point and even breaking into Brandy's house while she's out. All sorts of nonsense. Segway forward to March 1991. Brandy's friend Jessica, who, if you remember at the beginning of this story, it was Brandy and her friend Jessica who met Gator in the eight, in 87 at that skate yes. tournament. So Jessica Bergston had gotten back in touch with Gator after years of not speaking to him. She maybe wasn't aware of the situation between him and Brandy. I don't know. But she got back in touch and said, I'm coming to San Diego. Can you give me a tour? And he said, sure. Days later, or not long after that, Jessica Bergston was reported missing. No. Her body was found by campers on April 10 in 1991 Unfortunately, it was unidentifiable due to decomposition. And shortly after that, Mark Gator-Rigowski confessed to police that he was the one responsible for her death. So he 
came forward. He came forward. Wow. He told police that they'd gone back to his house to drink, smoke, watch movies. Then he trigger warning. He hit her many times on the back of the head with a metal car steering wheel <gasps> lock. I won't go into great detail, but he did things like screaming Bible verses at her, and he did commit a sexually violent act on her before suffocating her. And, oh my God! And then dumping her this body guy. in the desert. Yeah. Awful. Oh, this guy. Awful. So he then told the police that he'd done it through anger from his breakup with Brandy. And that's what was the motivation behind the murder. Police had him banged to rights and then he went to trial. And during the trial, it was revealed that Jessica's father would be coming to court and he had intentions to hurt Rogowski. So as a result, every visitor at this trial was examined with handheld metal detectors. And in the end, he Mm. was convicted of murder and faced the death penalty, Michelle. But that was wow. later changed to different convictions of se- separate convictions of murder and rape charges. He is currently on a 31 year life sentence for raping and murdering Jessica Bergston. And she was only 22 years old at this time. Oh, God. And there was no chance of parole until 31 years later. While he was there, he did go ahead and get bachelor's degrees and took vocational courses. He's now a a certified paralegal, immersed himself into self-help books, and he has shown remorse over the murder of Jessica. And I think in 2019 he was up for parole, but that was overruled by the Californian government. So he's still in there, eligible possibly in 2023. But the reason why I was aware of this story, Michelle, because I heard an abridged version of that in a great podcast that I'm listening to at the moment called Heidi World on Luminary. And it's about the madam of the 90s, Heidi Fleiss. Do you remember her? Yes, of Mm. course we, yes, Heidi Fleiss with the infamous Little Black Book. The Little Black Book. Everyone was in it. Absolutely. And a lot of people, you know, it doesn't sound that shocking now when you think about Ghislaine Maxwell and Brian, what's his name? Mm. Brian Epstein? No, it's not. What's his name? Epstein. (laughs) What was his name? Yeah. Ronald? David Epstein? No. David Epstein? Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey. Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Jesus Christ. They also had black books and all sorts of things. So but yeah. I think most of Heidi's girls were actually working girls and they knew what they were getting themselves into, unlike those girls. But one of those girls was Brandy McLean. She was an no. ex-Heidi girl. And she was actually present when the police busted Heidi's sex work business. But the girls stayed, Heidi and Brandy stayed friends. But when I looked into what where they are now, very recently, yeah. as of this year, March, Heidi and Brandy are at war over the reneging of a custodial agreement over four macaws. They're birds. <laughs> They're wild, birds, tropical birds. So Brandy McLean says that Heidi Fleiss gifted these birds to her and that they've been well looked after. But Heidi Fleiss says, I bought four four birds and entrusted them to Brandy. What, to look after? To look after. And when she wanted them back, she'd get them back. Because Heidi just wants birds to be flying free. That's her big thing. Brandy has a huge property. And apparently she got in touch over Twitter or something and said, Heidi, I just love what you're doing with the birds. And I've got this great big acreage. And Heidi said, well, why don't you look after four of my birds and let them fly free? But unfortunately, Brandy gave them to some people. And as a result, (gasps) Heidi found out about it and can't get them back. 
And now they're in law court. Bird war. Yeah, bird war. The bird battle. It rages on. Oh, my goodness. And I know that's a bit of a segue away from the, the horrible crime that I told you about Gator. But that's the connection. Oh, my goodness. Well... It's a bit weird. After everything they've gone through, they're arguing about birds. birds exactly. But, um, I, you know, I can see people get het up about that kind of thing. But that is absolutely a really creepy story. Yeah. And it just goes to show, like, obviously, when Jessica went to Gators, yep. everything he felt against the rage. for Brandy yeah. was triggered. And channeled into Jessica. Wrong place, wrong time, mm. but... Oh, just heartbreaking for the family. It is heartbreaking. Sure. And they do often say that in cases like that, murder murder cases like that, it is usually somebody that you know. Usually somebody probably yep. a bit closer because he was kind of one yep. removed. But then when you think about your stories, which are consistently girls going missing because they've been picked mm-hmm. up by the side of the road or wrong place, wrong time, there are predators out there. And you've just got to tell your kids to be fucking careful. Look, we all have to just be careful and carry have our wits about a it. skateboard with you ready to <laughs> bop them across the head but equally I don't want to live a life where of fear I just yeah I see the negatives and and fearful in situations you know yeah. I I have a friend who she deliberately has been not picking her kids up from what? things after school because she wants to encourage her kids to take the bus okay and to not be fearful of public transport the kids have been getting a lot of flack from the other parents saying, oh, so your mum and dad aren't coming to pick you up again. And they don't understand that there is some logic behind why they were. I mean, and look, the kids are not like five. The kids are like, you know, 16. Right. It's just they want to encourage their kids to not have fear about being out and about and to be independent. It's hard in this time. I was on a bus at five. On my own? We were all on buses, <laughs> on action, Canberra action buses. I wasn't on an action bus, but I was on a bus, a school bus. Yeah, but, you know, times have changed, I guess. But you're right, there are predators. We just always have to have our wits about us, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, look, thank you so much. Do you know what? I absolutely love hearing about your wild Canberra days because you really, you lived the the wildlife. I certainly didn't. I was. What you know, did you do? Worked at McDonald's, got employee of the month. I got bad apple of the month because I talk too much. That's right. You know, I had a very wholesome kind of year 11 and 12. I say that. I mean, Neil, the scientist, and I, we were always having boozy parties and things at our friend's place. It wasn't wild. We weren't we weren't skating around. I mean, actually, they were all skaters. They probably were all down at, God, the place where DRI was had that infamous. Uh, Spurs. That was at Spurs. I was Spurs. there. Spurs. Yeah. Yeah, of course you were. Yeah, so... <laughs> Again, it was skins versus skate punks. It's always skins versus skate punks. That was how it was back in the 80s in Canberra for me. Yeah, I think I think you had a, a wilder time than me. Riots, left, right and centre. I know. Canberra was a crazy place back then. It's very gentrified now. But thanks for that amazing story. I just think Patricia Arquette had a lucky... Yeah. Lucky escape. She sure did. And she could tell that all from like a really a kiss. hard tongue kiss. kiss. A yeah. shit kiss. Yeah. So there you go. That's another That's another take home message tell. for people. That's a message. Yeah. <laughs> Just always be aware of how people kiss. If it's too aggressive, you can't tell people that, Michelle. <laughs> Obviously, it's me telling them that. Yeah, let's, let's not put that in. That's ridiculous. Kiss how you like. But make sure the other person, you know, as I always say, 
It's consensual. Yeah, but if you're having a kiss and someone's ramming their tongue in, how do you say, oh, I didn't consent to that tongue? I don't like it. Don't do I that. Don't know. Anyway. Or you give them a fake number and you say bye-bye. Yeah. Or you say to them, delete my number. That happened to a friend of mine. <laughs> after really? a one what she did after a one night stand. Oh Yeah, he he got into the cab leaving her house and then he just yelled out, Delete my number <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. He apparently looked wow. like Shrek and she was it was a like a mercy mercy shag. And then he said delete. I know. Fine. Terrible. Gladly. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for your great story. I really love. it. All right, it. darling. Lovely to see you. Lovely to talk to you. And uh, for now, all we can tell our eavesdroppers is, number one, vote, vote, vote. Listener's choice. Don't forget to go and vote. Britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Eavesdropping, no G. Apostrophe. And then what you have to do is remember that wherever you are. Whatever you do. Just keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.